can't stop. Man, I can't stop. You're listening to the Sports Aid Vault podcast with me, Tom Gale. Now, regular listeners will know this is our second series of the Sports Aid Vault, and it's brought to you in association with Commonwealth Games England and the Team England Futures Programme. Each episode will see us providing you with a unique insight ahead of the Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games alongside special guests as Team England gets set to shine on home soil. We'll be offering a behind-the-scenes look at what a multi-sport games entails and take a deep dive into how athletes and their support staff can best prepare to deliver medal-winning performances as well as making the most of the opportunities that they'll be presented with. This episode, we're joined by two MBEs, Amma Agbezi and Kate Howie. Amma is a netball icon who famously captained England to the country's first ever Commonwealth Games gold medal in the sport, That success on the Gold Coast came back in 2018, 12 years after her Commonwealth's debut when the Roses returned from Melbourne with bronze. She also skippered England to gold at the European Championships in 2016 and a year later they were crowned champions at the Fast Five Netball World Series. She racked up over 100 caps having first made her international debut in 2001. Amit most recently plied her trade at club level with Severn Stars in the Vitality Netball Super League enjoying a decorated career at home as well as in Australia and New Zealand. Her clubs include Team Bath, Loughborough Lightning, West Coast Fever, Central Pulse and the Adelaide Thunderbirds, plus many more. A standout moment for Amma came in 2009 when she won the Australian Championship with the Melbourne Vixens in a historical season for the club. She received an MBE in 2019 for services to netball and is an inductee of the England Netball Hall of Fame. She's also a Sports Aid trustee and ambassador for the United by Birmingham 2022 community programme and a member of the organising committee for this summer's Commonwealth Games. Kate is a judo legend who broke numerous records during her career and helped bolster the sport's popularity in this country beyond recognition. She is the only British woman to have won two Olympic judo medals after winning bronze at Barcelona in 1992 and silver in Sydney eight years later. Kate made an instant impression at senior level when she claimed silver at the European Championships as a 16-year-old back in 1990. She celebrated numerous podium finishes over the course of her career, a major highlight securing gold at the World Championships in 1997. Later that year, Kate was awarded an MBE for services to judo. She was also chosen to be Great Britain's flag bearer at the opening ceremony for the Athens 2004 Olympics and still remains just one of four women to have been given the role by Team GB in the history of the Summer Games. Kate retired having competed at senior level for 16 years and this illustrious period was followed by a hugely successful stint as head coach at British Judo, a role she stepped away from recently. Many will recall she famously helped guide Gemma Gibbons to a stunning silver medal at London 2012. Kate continues to coach within British judo ranks and is also part of the UK sports leadership programme aimed at increasing female representation in high performance coaching roles. So I'm going to be talking to Amma and Kate about how athletes aim to peak at the right time for a major games the psychology of competing in front of a home crowd, the -the behind-the-scenes work undertaken by team leaders in the build-up to competitions and managing the highs and lows of sport. Right, here we go. Welcome, Amma and Kate. Amma, I'll start with your good self first. There's lots of hats you're bringing to this. Celio girl, defending Commonwealth champion. I know you're not going to sadly, unfortunately, be in Birmingham, but you were the last person on top of a Commonwealth gold medal rostrum in terms of netball. You're a sports aid trustee and you've also an ambassador for this game. So how are you feeling? They're just a few weeks away. What's what's your uh, excitement levels? Yeah, actually, I'm on the board of the organising committee as well. And so I think that dampens down my excitement. But I think being from Birmingham with netball being the reigning champions it's a really exciting feeling because it's not very often that a games goes to your hometown and so I think for Birmingham it's a massive massive thing and I I am disappointed that I'm not playing but I think to be part of it to be on the board and to help in the organizing to make sure that the games happen 
in a great way and that it's great for athletes has been very different um, but very exciting so I just can't wait now so the countdown is definitely on. Not to be too cliche but what's the word on the street what are, what are people in Birmingham saying about you know hosting a major championships? Yeah I think it's very difficult to understand or comprehend before the championships begin and I think Birmingham is very welcoming and Brummies are so at the moment I think there's just a quiet understated excitement but I think once the games are on it's just going to be electric it's just going to take off and that visibility is massive isn't it Kate we've spoken about it that um obviously we've we've had London 2012 and we had Manchester the Commonwealth Games back in 2006 but just that relishing prospect of being in a British airtime because I think Amaral pointed out as well the Gold Coast great achievement <laughs> with a lot of people staying up late at night now this potential captivating audience bringing the country together after what's been a really difficult couple of years yeah, definitely. Um, there's nothing better than a home crowd. Having experienced London 2012 as a coach, absolutely amazing. And I, I'm pretty sure that, that Birmingham's going to be exactly the same. Um, for judo as well, we, we're based in Walsall at the University of Wolverhampton. Um, that's our centre. So, you know, for a lot of the fighters that, that are participating, whether they be from England, Ireland, Scotland or Wales, they are based in in, in the Birmingham area so you know it's good that family and friends can actually come and watch as well because Tokyo as we all know there was no spectators and and that's that's part of it that's part of the excitement and everything that your mums your dads your friends your family loved ones everyone gets to see you but unfortunately it didn't happen in Tokyo but um, for Birmingham it's, it's on the doorstep so it'd be amazing. Then that familiarity is key as obviously when we're addressing home games for some it is going to be relatively routine competing in similar areas similar stadia but for you with your head coach and, and team lead your previous hats on what what are you I know the planning starts way in advance <laughs> as we go some athletes it's right okay it's here then you know the major target and then it becomes a reality but the support team are planning for these things years in advance so specifically with your insight to London 2012 and I know obviously not directly involved with the Commonwealth Games coaching setup, but how do athletes go about preparing for a home games? Um, I think one of the things we try and instill is that even Olympic Games is the norm because you're still competing on a judo mat. It's still one-on-one. -on -one. Okay, the, 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 the place might be different and the opponent might be different, but it's still the same thing that you do day in, day out. And... That's what we try to instil in them anyway. So going into home games, don't get me wrong, it is going to be different because they will see their friends and family in the crowd. But it's just trying to keep everybody, even support staff, on track and not get skewed to and get caught up in the emotion. Um, that that will be the hardest thing for them. But um, we try and keep it as normal as possible um, and try and not yet try and not let your head get run away with you, sort of thing. So. That, that's that's probably the biggest thing we try and instill is this is the norm. You do it every day. It's just a slightly different venue, slightly different opponent. You're still on a 10 by 10 mat. You've, you've got to fight somebody else. So, you know. How crucial is it that the support staff embody that as well? Because I think that's a good point that you make, isn't it? That athletes sometimes can get carried away. I'm going to meet my mum around there or I know my aunt's coming from. They've just made an hour journey, which they couldn't have seen me there. It's key that the support staff is showing that same resilience and resistance to outside influence as well. Is, is that a key part of the success? Yeah, feel? I think I think everybody, you know, you have times within the day, within the week that is set for family time or whatever. But when it's game day, it's game day. I'm sure Amma's the same that, you know, you, I was for one that I'd always just pick my dad out in the crowd when I was younger and then I'd be settled. That was it. I didn't speak to him, didn't do anything, just had to know where he was. And I think that's the same for anybody, whether you're an athlete, support staff, it's game day, it's everybody, as support staff, it's everybody's special day. This could be the biggest thing in their whole life and for somebody to then walk off and not do the job that they're supposed to be doing could absolutely destroy that. So, you know, every day's a new day, every day's a game day and there is time for mixing with family, friends, loved ones, when they've got the gold medal and they're standing on top of the rostrum. So, you know, it's it, it's one of them that they have to, as I keep going back to the norm, try and keep it to the norm and do what they would normally do at any other competition. If we flip that on the other side, where 
athletes from all around the globe are going to be coming and maybe looking at English athletes and thinking they're under added pressure. So for you, your success in 2018, was that discussed much as regards to the build-up, that the pressures that Australia and potential distractions that they would be under compared to yourselves? I think, interestingly, actually, we didn't ever discuss the pressure that Australia would be under. I think we had a plan of, as Kate said, just taking each opponent as they come. So we just talked about how we would approach each game and didn't really focus on how there would be an impact on the opposition. And so we never really discussed Australia being at home. Uh, We knew, having played, obviously, abroad, we know the significant impacts that home crowd can have. So I think going into that final game, we understood that there would be a lot of noise and a lot of crowd support for Australia. But we didn't ever discuss that they would be under pressure. And I think part of the reason at games time was, was that they had earmarked netball as one of the medals that they would win gold in. And then when England qualified for the final, having never been there before, they were quite sure that they would win gold. And so I don't think they felt pressure because they were sort of like, well, England have never been in a final. We have several times, we're at home, we're going to win. And so it was a really different perspective I think than usually so typically I think a home team might feel the pressure but I think the Australian netballers were sure that they had secured the gold so they I think they were already excited before the game excited for their victory um, which might have impacted their performance. I'm interested when you say that what what was the media like out there in terms of your consumption of it because did you avoid Australian television as regard and did you try and get I don't know BBC news or whatever because it would have been perhaps quite difficult to get drawn into that narrative wouldn't it as regards to that being a potential distraction yeah so the accommodation there was no TV although I don't think there was we never ever watched TV so <laughs> if there was we we mixed it and we did jigsaw puzzles and things like that but I think it was easy to get drawn into the media circuits. Um, Being in Australia, I think it was easier for us to withdraw from their domestic media, but I guess we're in the age of internet access. And so it was easy on your phone to read, read the news, see what was going on in the UK, look into social media. And we'd, there's always a discussion around whether you should have a blanket ban on social media um, and things like that. But I I'm of the opinion that everyone's an individual, so you should be able to manage yourself. Um, And I think in the build-up to that, we never had a rule that you banned phones or banned social media. And so as Kate said, you try to keep things as normal as possible. And so we didn't have a blanket ban on social media. And I think it did mean that some people might have said, actually, I'm going to switch off social media because I know it distracts me. And other people were not in the same boat. Um, So I think as captain, I was trying to monitor the people who I thought might be impacted um, by social media, be it positive or negative at the time. And that's something we'll get into, that sort of captain responsibility as well. You're not just thinking about your own psychology, but you're thinking about others. Uh, Kate, if I can come back to yourself, obviously your success with Gemma Gibbons, particularly in 2012. Can you talk us through that evolution? Because I think you've rightfully pointed out there, you were preparing like it was any other games. We know it was in London. We knew there'd be extra pressures. But also that momentum once you get stuck in, essentially, and you know, you've been on the map for the first time, you've got that first win. And you start to build that story, don't you? And the crowd gets to get more and more behind you. And then ultimately, I can't describe that atmosphere when you're in there and there's a medal at stake with a home crowd as well. How was that as a co- from a coaching perspective to manage? Um, I think, as you say, the momentum as the day got more and more and more and more. And then obviously she got to the final. Um, but there was a lot of different things throughout the day. Um, normally, you wouldn't walk through media after every fight but I just had to keep her walking through, not talking to anybody because everybody wants to get a bit of a... Even in the, the warm-up and the um, we have, like, a kick control. It's all English people. It's people that I've known since I was a kid. It's mm-hmm. people that that Gemma's known since she was a youngster as well. So, like, even the hellos, you don't want to be rude, but, you know, Gemma's got a job to do, I've got a job to do. So it was a little bit of briefing around me as head coach well, me as the coach at that time, a briefing around, can you keep people away from us, please? Because we don't want to be rude, but, you know, people do. The, and the, the further she got, the more people wanted from her. She actually broke her finger 
um, in the, I think it was the second or third fight. So that was take, distracting her a little bit, which was really good. Um, <laughs> that's, that's me just telling her it's absolutely fine, it's fine. But actually, it's broken in two places, but it was all right. Um, but it's just you don't want to be rude, but you have got a job to do, and it's just it's just keeping everybody on track. And when she'd won the semi-final, obviously stadium erupts. She's got a medal, albeit she's still in the final. And you don't want a, anybody, an athlete or a fighter, to switch off then because they, they, they still haven't finished. And the easiest thing to do is, yeah, I've got a medal. I, I don't really need to, to get up for it anymore. Um, but that was probably the hardest part, getting her back up because people still coming up and congratulating her to, that was in the stadium, that was behind the scenes. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, just leave us alone, go away. Um, we haven't finished yet. You know, th this is the difference between a gold and a silver medal. Um, so it's... It's difficult. It's difficult to manage, but you know, if you, if you set if you set it out from the beginning as to what you want to happen, and if you've got people around you and support staff around you that know what they need to do to try and make things happen, then you know you, you have to rely on a team around you and to do to do what they need to do. Yeah, I think what Kate's saying is true, and it's interesting because you can control you'd control the controllables as an athlete and so you can tell your friends and family don't contact me don't message me these are the appropriate times or this is appropriate to say but then as Kate said when you're at home there's lots of people around who you know or volunteers will be more inclined to talk to you as a home nation athlete and so it's about trying to manage those things and as Kate said she doesn't want to make any athlete or her support staff be rude to people but sometimes you don't have a choice and so it is about how you manage those situations and I think having a plan in place as to what can happen and so obviously Kate as being the coach and in the support staff can have different impact or influence on the other support staff around to try to make sure that there is no negative impact but it's really difficult to control people outside of your control. And Kate, is, is there ever any distinction between, you know, athletes will be at various stages, won't they? If this is a Commonwealth Games or World Championships and Olympics, some are there to win medals, some is arguably their first development, you know, their first route on the journey. Some it might be the last swan song where they know they're not expecting to. How difficult is that to manage within the group, like you've said, in terms of if, if everyone's trying to keep it business-like, but you know as a coach and a leader that they do have contrasting sort of perspective on that major championships is, is that something easy especially and then put it on home soil as well <laughs> yeah I, I do you know what the, the it's not easy but we can make it easy and that is and I alluded it to it in the first question I think uh, every day is a new day and for judo especially they fight on one day it's all over in one day not like team sports where it probably starts on the first day and finishes on the last day so it's all over for them on one day. So that is their day. You do everything you can for them on that day. But then as soon as, even sometimes before the medal ceremonies even happen, the coach and the support staff have to get back to the village to sort out the next day because there's a weigh-in and stuff like that. So you just move on. It's a bit robotic, really. It's a bit sad. You just move on <laughs> from from one thing to the next thing, but it's only at the end of it that you will look back and you can celebrate or, or do whatever. But as, you're right, some people are going to a Commonwealth Games just for the development experience because it's a major games. It's it's something... Judo is very, very singular as well. Like We go all over the world, but it's just judo. So to get somebody in to a multi-sport event before the Olympic Games, because the Olympic Games for judo obviously is the pinnacle, but to give them that experience, and there will be people in the team uh, from the home nations that... That is their first one, and as you say, it, it's some, for some of them it's their swan song as well. It's the it, it's their farewell, especially on home soil. They might say, "Thank you very much. This is the last one." And others, we've got world championships in uh, September, end of August, September. This is just a stepping stone to keep them. It's just extra fights for the world championships. So, uh, you know, it's everybody approaches it different. Everybody's an individual, um, and everybody wants something different out of it. But what doesn't change, probably, is the support staff and the coaches around it. We all do the same thing. And I, is that the distinction then, I guess, from cultural, the team ethos has these certain principles and then individuals will take that in their various tangents depending on where they are in the career. And 
Amarif talked about their managing from a team management point of view, different goals, expectations, experience levels. There's going to be a whole host of captains in team sports now, sort of across Team England, Team Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. Sort of, you're not thinking about yourself, are you, as well? I don't, I don't know, is it... Do you sort of, you know yourself extremely well and you think, right, I know what I need to do, but how much of that do you then invest in caring for the, you know, the cliche of the younger members of the squad or those who, you know, it's the first time or those who've managed injuries? Can you talk us through how a, a team captain approaches a, a major championships? So I think by the time I became captain, I knew myself reasonably well. Um, it was towards the end of my um, career and... I sort of put myself on on the back seat, and I think in hindsight, actually, I probably shouldn't have done that to the extent that I did. Um, but in the build up to the games, I think that was the most significant time. So, really getting to know and understand the players that were potentially going to the game. So the squad is quite large; there might be up to twenty five people, but only twelve go to the game. So. As captain, I made sure that I got to know each player individually and what made them tick, what caused distractions to them, who was the best person to influence them when they were in particular emotional situations. Um, and so then come games time, I already knew what the players were like and how they would react. And so I could keep an eye on which players I needed to sort of give a G up or give a kick in the backside for them to step up. <laughs> things. So it's I think it was definitely a process of getting to know them but as a captain I definitely myself took a back seat and it was more about the team and negotiating the different nuances between them and how do you how do you approach this in this day and age is that little individual words is it a whatsapp here and there or does every team leader find their own way of sort of fitting into that that team I guess I think every team leader finds their own way. Um, and I think because it's a team and it's made up of individuals, everybody doesn't react the same way. And so it probably is best that that leader dis- defines what they are doing and how best to help the team. Um, but then also I think it's important to remember that there's on-court and there's off-court. So some leaders in teams are really influential on-court and players will lift to them. And then other um, captains might be have a bigger impact off court and so it's around how to motivate the team how to make sure that they're united because obviously within the team there it's made up of individuals and so every individual might have a different aim or focus for that tournament or those games and so as the leader it's about how you can ensure that there is I guess the combined thought and belief around the team outcome but then also trying to manage the individual so that they're individual personal I guess almost selfish um have you thought about becoming a coach because uh, that's exactly keep, what you do people keep telling me to be um, that I should go to coaching and I'm, I don't know why I'm really hesitant <laughs> but maybe maybe I should look into it and I have you taken that light from some of your previous leaders as well as we've got because sometimes I know it's not the common rule but we sort of sometimes maybe think that the coaching it is more about that interpersonal and getting the best out rather than arguably the technique and the strategies, which depending on the athlete stage of their career, they probably all know that. But similar to the way you were managing those characters, it's like, we know we're all good enough. We know what the team tactics are. It's getting you in that best possible mindset to go out and just do your thing, I guess. Exactly. And I think with the increase in um, sports science, pretty much every team and every athlete has, well, most athletes have, the physical support in terms of the training that they do, the nutrition, the things that surround being an athlete, so sleep. Um, and so I think the biggest thing that you can influence is psychology and belief around individuals and the team. And so I think that's the 1% difference because if everyone's doing the same training and um, recovering the same, the only thing that you can change is how the team see themselves, how individuals perform and respond to pressure and Kate you you said about it we're trying to che- treat it as still a judo mat it's you know it's in home soil but was there any discussion with psychologists about you know you talked about ignoring media messages from family as regards to it w- was there any even though you don't want to emphasize it but is there the, just those additional little elements just to say yes it is a normal thing but there will be these slight nuances 
Contrast that to when you go to an extremely hot country or a different time zone and things like that. There's always little nuances. And I guess is the key maybe not to over-egg them so the athlete gets distracted away from the objective. Yeah, I think I think that's, that is that is the case. Of course, it's going to be slightly different. Of course it is. And it's holding your hands up and, and being honest with the athlete that, of course, it's going to be slightly different because it's home soil. But that doesn't change what you do normally. You've got your headphones on to distract you. You're in the tunnel waiting to go on. You've got your pre-fight routine. You, you know, we, that's that. When I say trying to make it as normal as possible, that is something. As Emma said, control the controllables. That's something that they can do and they do on a weekly basis when they fight. So that's bringing the norm back into it so that they don't get distracted. Um, you know, and having a. a that's the sign of a, a good coach as well, having the conversation with the coach that stood Matt's side with them to to if they feel like they they're drifting off to try and find somebody in the crowd or something, just looking. You know, the coach the coach is very clever in bringing them back to where they should be and making them focus. So it's it, it is you, of course you have to acknowledge it, um, but there there are ways around solving the problem. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a lot of that comes from your wealth of experience, Kate. So a big part focus of this episode is peaking. Uh, so the, the large listenership of this, Team England Futures, you know, they've had some peaks, haven't they? But they're relatively, you know, still developing in those careers. For you, someone like yourself who had success at a very young age, but still that longevity about it as well. So obviously two times an Olympic medalist, obviously Europeans. I know this is extremely hard to maybe answer in one, but... What was key in peaking? Did your peaking evolve as you grew as an athlete or from the very beginning? Were there those same fundamentals that you did that you got that sorry that got you in the ideal shape come those major championships? Yeah. Um I think it is and it was only sort of when I finished, it is a, is is about preparation and how you prepare to go into a competition. Um you know, as as a youngster, I very much dictated to by the coach. I do this, do that, do this, do that. But then by the time I finished, there's some things that weren't quite right that I'd have the conversation with the coach, and that only evolves through time. Um, you know, so by the time I finished, which is really sad because you're finishing, yeah. you sort of you sort of nailed it. Um, yeah, <laughs> that was If you could hindsight. do, yeah, if you could do that ten years prior, but then of course that's how people learn and the development. You know, um, but. I mean, for judo, it's very difficult. Um, we don't have a season. We're all year all year round. We have a, a Worlds every year, but obviously peaking for a big one with either Commonwealth Games or, or Olympic Games, you know, it's you work backwards. We work backwards in four-year cycles. So um, it is trying to get that right. And everybody's different. Everybody is different on how they how they peak. And I did four four Olympic Games as an athlete and four as a coach, but... I can honestly say I probably only peaked run- once right for that, if that makes sense. The first one, I was very young. I think I was just happy to be there and just happened to be quite good at judo and sort of got a medal. I wouldn't say it was a fluke, but, you know, it was, it was one of them things. And it wasn't until 2000 that it was probably the right peak. Everything was right and, you know, I've only experienced it once before in the World Championship. So two times out of a career that was 15, 16 years have I peaked right. It's really, really hard to do. And is the ben- the benefit of particularly now when you have been as a coach and a team leader that you have had that checkered journey, haven't you? Sometimes mm. you didn't get it quite right and sometimes you didn't get selected for certain things. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. particularly for these younger athletes, I think, I know it's a massive generalisation, but it's been relatively linear, hasn't it, in terms of to get onto the Team England Futures programme from the most majority of them, they've been doing well and they've continued to rise. From your experience of that support staff, is that where you can come in in terms of, you don't want to downplay things, do you? Especially when an athlete's being successful, but equally being prepared to pick them up and go again when it hasn't peaked or hasn't quite nailed it for that yeah. set championships. Yeah, I mean, as you said before, I was I medal at Olympic Games very young. I was 19. And then I was the cocky teenager that thought I knew everything. <laughs> no, and absolutely <laughs> blew it for Atlanta. So, you know, I've been there. I've done it. I've got the T-shirt. Got the heartbreak that goes with going to another games and and not performing. Um, so, you know, I think athlete coach relationships is probably one of the most undersold 
piece of British coaching that that is uh, that is out there because if you haven't got the relationship with your coach to bring you through the hard times and even to knock you down through the good times to keep you on an even keel, then uh, you're not going to get anywhere. And everybody gets setbacks. That's what makes you learn. And everybody eventually will have that high moment and you have to be kept on track or else, you know, you stay on that high and you blow the next one. But, you know, athlete-coach relationship is massive and having having the conversation with your coach to to make you understand why you've not been selected or how was it that I won that when I wasn't quite ready and, and things like that. You know, you understand a lot more about yourself when you have the relationships that you do with the coach. Emma, for yourself, because I think particularly obviously with team sports as well, you have an extremely competitive domestic season. You've got lots of club aspects and I know you played all over the globe in terms of that variety of culture, but, you know, winning a league title and whatnot but then also coinciding that with your international setup and for netball being the peak of, you know, the, the Commonwealth Games is what everyone wants to win in your sport. Can you sort of summarise your journey through learning of bronze medal in, in Melbourne and then, you know, it seems that like you went full circle, didn't you, to win it on the Gold Coast and get that goal? But I'm sure it's been a, a wavy road in between, I would assume. Yeah, definitely. So I don't think any athlete's career is linear I think when you're younger you're sort of on the rise and you're incredible and then I think you get into the big leagues and things change and injury um definitely had a massive impact on my career um but then I think also going to play in different domestic teams and playing in Australia and New Zealand and understanding about team culture and also just a really good daily training environment which clubs in England didn't necessarily have. Um, but I think it's interesting in terms of peaking because in in England, if you're part of the England programme and the squad, um, as Kate said, you work backwards from a Games. And so typically there'd potentially be a clash between your club. Um, so between January and May, potentially, you're away with your club. But England will have an eye on whatever's coming up in terms of the Commonwealth Games or the World Championships. And so they will set your um, training programme in terms of your agility and your weight according to peaking when you need to internationally, um, which occasionally impacts your domestic season. So you might do a really heavy weight session and then have to play a game the next day. Whereas actually, if your club were in control of your training, you would be peaking for each game in the domestic season. So I think as an athlete, it's learning to deal with that and understand that you might be struggling in a game because your legs are really heavy and it's because your plan is the international plan. Um, So I think it took a long time to sort of understand that and work with it. it. I think it's for some athletes, it's really frustrating because you also need to perform Every, every single week for your club because you have a responsibility to them. But also you're not going to get selected internationally if you're not performing at your peak, at your best, sorry. So it's a really interesting balance. But I think also there's then contending with injuries, underperformance, um, psychological strain, and then also the impacts that non-sporting things have on you. So relationships, financial implications, travel, family illness so there's so many aspects that come into it that you have to manage and as Kate said as you get older you start to understand more and more or as you get more experienced even you understand more and more the implications of different things and how you react to them and how you can deal with things or take yourself away from certain things but it takes a lot of experience I think to get to that stage. Can you talk us through that club versus country and I don't know it seems as though it's a potential friction point isn't it because like you say rightfully you've got commitments to your club and we get into the business end of the season they don't want you lifting heavy weights but you know potentially depending on when that major championships is scheduled for if I want to play for England so how easy did you ever fall by the wayside with that get one wrong or talk us through that yeah definitely you do get it wrong and I think the more experience you get the more you have discussions with the say the England SNC coach in terms of this happened last time, can I just tweak this? Um, but I think when you're less experienced, you just do what you're told and you potentially have to deal with the consequences of that. Um, and so also I, th- I know that there's discussions behind the scene in terms of support staff talking to 
each other, so international and domestic, to try and get an understanding and balance around each athlete. Um, And then also that changes internationally. So when I played domestically in Australia and New Zealand, um, the England leadership don't necessarily have as much impact or influence on those clubs and so it changed again and um, but I do know that the in coach would go to every single club and speak to the coaches there and so sort of they had to try and collaborate so on court if there were things that England wanted me to work on they would have that discussion with the coach of whatever club I was playing at so that they could sort of strike a balance because I think internationally and Kate might be able to elaborate some more but you don't get much time internationally in netball you're with your club pretty much most of the time so the legwork has to be done whilst you're at club be it in the gym or on court or tweaking things that you need to work on so it's really difficult and I think as an inexperienced player it's quite hard to comprehend but as you get older or more experienced you do start to understand and you know your body more so you know how much you can put it through and still be able to perform it's interesting, but okay, again, revert back to your team leader and managing those various scenarios for a Commonwealth Games for Judoka. You know, they won't all be in the world class performance program, will they, as regards to Warsaw? So, some are coming from that contrasting setup of largely being club coached as well and they're thrown into this big sphere as regards to it. So, was that something obviously that you had to plan with regards to your preparations? Um, I think <laughs> I'd be a liar if I say no, but. Um... <laughs> from an England perspective it's been very simple because we as I said we're based in Walsall in Birmingham Um, probably 99% or 98% of the team will come from Walsall so they've just been following the GB programme per se until they get handed over to England Um, slightly different for the other home nations I know that they've been doing camps around Europe and stuff but it's it's no different to the camps that England are doing. So that even even though it's home nations, they're all going to the same competition or the same training camp. Um, so it isn't anything different because that's all there is available within judo. There's different to, to netball. There is international competition pretty much every week if you want to go and find it. So, um, you know, we've, we've got some that are going to the Commonwealth Games from the home nations that go into Mongolia this weekend. So, like... We've got an international calendar, which is qualification for the Olympic Games, which starts this weekend, believe it or not, two <laughs> years out. Um, wow. So that's, started, that's kicked off this weekend on top of trying to get the home nations ready for, um, for the Commonwealth Games and the World Championships. And then on top of that, you're trying to do a GB programme as well because it's the start of a qualification. So... You know, it's it's a lot of discussion with the home nations on who's going where and what's happening and coaches, sports science, everybody talking. Um, actually in quite a good place that, that we do talk as home nations, so that's pretty good or else it could be really, really difficult. But um, anybody that has aspirations of going to an Olympic Games is always talking to the GB setup anyway. So, you know, it's it's been quite easy from that point of view, but it's just a bit of a logistical nightmare. <laughs> I can imagine spinning many plates, spinning yeah. many plates. The second series of the Sports Aid Vault comes to you in association with the Commonwealth Games England and Team England Futures. So now's a good time for me to tell you a little bit more. Team England Futures is a program being delivered by Sports Aid on behalf of Commonwealth Games England and Sport England at the Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games. Team England Futures will see around a thousand talented young athletes and aspiring support staff given the opportunity to attend the Games and take a first-hand look behind the scenes. The programme aims to give the next generation of athletes a head start, experiencing a major Games in the flesh and better preparing them for future multi-sport competitions. It also plans to help aspiring support staff understand what opportunities they could be presented with at a major Games, as well as the challenges they may face. In advance of the Games, participants are benefiting from online sessions which focus on a whole range of topics, including nutrition, sleep, mental well-being and dealing with the media. During the Games, each athlete will be invited to attend a sporting event and spend time with a group of senior athletes sharing advice and knowledge from their own careers. 
Team England futures will reinforce the importance of the Commonwealth Games, particularly one hosted on home soil, as a developmental opportunity within the talent and performance pathway. The programme is designed to enable a diverse cohort of athletes and support staff to see how to perform at their best, handling the pressure, managing the distractions and enjoying the experience of a major games. The athletes and support staff will also recognise the impact of able-bodied and para-athletes competing alongside each other and gain a greater understanding into what it means to be part of a diverse multi-sport team. We wish all the athletes and support staff on the programme an amazing experience and we hope they'll be able to take inspiration from the guests appearing on the Sports Aid Vault podcast. And one of the things we want to talk to you about, Kate, is that that whole planning aspect of said major games. And I know there would have been nuances as regards to London and things like that. But how far in advance do you, is it a four year cycle? It depend on, you know, in terms of accommodation, holding camps, you know, how ingrained is that or how I get all more in how much does that evolve every year as regards to how you go about preparing? In terms of the logistic sort of thing and where where we'd be training for a holding camp and all that sort of stuff before Paris, we were talking about that a year before Tokyo. Um, so that obviously you start the new cycle and you're already we're going four-year cycles. It's a bit different because Tokyo happened a year later, so it's a bit of a short one this time. But you tend to plan in a five-year cycle as well, if that if it doesn't really make sense. But <laughs> you have to think about Paris before Tokyo's even started. And we're, st- okay. we're talking about LA before Paris has even started. Um, in terms of, we're talking about futures here and, and development of youngsters coming through on the Commonwealth scene. Um, we tend to take, for, so for Tokyo, for training partners, we would take people that we think will qualify for Paris so that they get a games experience in case they've missed a Commonwealth because judo's not always in the Commonwealth Games just to get that vibe and to get the feeling of going to a major games before it's possibly their first one whether it be Paris and we do the same take the training partners out for the games experience for LA and so on so there's a bit of generational things that they're getting ready for it so that it's not one big, oh, my God, I'm at a major games and I've never <laughs> experienced it. So that's the planning. That's the detail that we do. Obviously, anybody that coaches and manages, they know all about planning. And, and it is, it's not just, let's hold our finger up, what are we going to do this week? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, we, we go, we work back from, from a game, major games four or five years out. So, you know, it's, it's crazy. And Amra, I know you just wanted to come in there, but just, just hold fire just a second for me. But just and and how did that go from athlete to now? You know, were you were you ever, or I don't know, did you want to be exposed to that detail when you were an athlete, or is it only something that once you stepped away from it and you became to appreciate how hard support staff in terms of, like you say, that six seven year projects as regards to getting you to peak in the right place? Yeah, I even now I'm a keep it simple girl. I, I don't like the too much detail um probably not a process driven person um i like the outcome which is probably a bit wrong at times but (laughs) um definitely as an athlete i would like to know what i needed to know and don't sort of trouble my little brain with anything that i don't really need to know and again the coach that we had then was was really good at doing that doing my video analysis i used to hate that as well i like watching it in real life but i don't like watching it on a screen um but he would pick things out, he'd tag things so that I knew exactly what my opponent was doing. So, you know, there was things that I needed to know, but don't involve me in the the fluffy stuff, as I would say. Um, <laughs> but as a coach now and head coach, of course, you need to know the fluffy stuff. But, um, you know, definitely as an athlete, I like, like to keep it simple. I just wanted to ask, Kate, a question around um, coaching. So you said 98% of the athletes would typically be training in Warsaw. But for the 2%, and I guess some of the 98%, you might be training with a certain coach and that's your coach. But then come games time, only certain coaches get to go to those, say, Olympic or Commonwealth Games. So I just wondered about um, how athletes cope, how as an athlete you cope with the fact that your actual coach isn't there. And 
you have to deal with sort of potentially new coaches, um, which might definitely affect your performance. So I just wondered if that's happened to you. Open Pandora's box there, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, um, obviously, because judo is individual and the coaches is probably not even seven metres away and you're shouting constantly at them. Um, it is a massive thing that we've highlighted because you only get so many accreditations at Olympic Games for coaching, so you can't take personal coaches or club coaches. And the same for Commonwealth Games. You've got Team England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales that have got a couple of coaches each. So because it's not a GB coach, they're probably going to be coached by somebody that they haven't been coached by before. But having said that, every one of the coaches that is coaching at the Commonwealth Games is in the coaching network of British Judo. So it's not a fresh face that they know, the fighters know the coaches, although they might not have sat mat side with them. They they know them from, from years and years, for years and years. Um, and also they have a home nation set up in Scotland, uh, Wales, England, The even though... Most of them are in Walsall. They are the England coaches come in for two or three days a week, so it's it's not a brand new face. So there's actually it's probably a really good model. Actually, is a really good integration of the coaches within the whole setup. But it is it can be quite daunting, and I've already had conversations with a couple of athletes that were given their sort of allotted coach that they wanted that that they thought they could work with and it that's not the case so you know that again it's a conversation come and ask the question if you'd prefer somebody else to coach nobody's precious then you just have a, a swap of the coaches you know and that's that's how it works because it is about it's about the athlete it's not about the coach if they need to be comfortable to get the best performance um and that's why home nation programs of have had them since they were young. They just only get fed into Warsaw when they're slightly older anyway. Um, so they've had that experience already. It's just slightly different with England. Um, but they are seeing them two, three times a week already. And then, I don't know, for the last eight weeks, they get to take them to nice places and the GB coaches get a bit of a sit back for a, for a while um, while the games are on. So, uh, no, it's, it's a good, very good question. And it's it's one that, that does crop up a lot of times, even for Olympic Games and whether somebody's in the setup and somebody's not, you know, they're, they're never going to have the their own personal coach with them. So we try and alleviate everything that we can with the coaches that we've got. Anna, can you talk us through balancing that club and country sort of preparation? Because I think uh, for Kate's experience, by and large, like you said, you know, depending on when the cycle starts, but athletes are training day in, day out for Worlds, Commonwealths, Olympics. For yourself, obviously, you 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 sort of mixing and matching, aren't you? You have intense England camps during the year, then it's back to club, and then now as we're a few weeks out from a major games, how how does that culture evolve as regards to how how do you get yourself <laughs> contrasting between club, country, cat, club, how how talk us through that, please. I think it depends on where you play. So if you play in the English Domestic League at the moment, the season finished maybe three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. And so those players will currently have had some downtime and will probably have started training again. But the New Zealand season only finished, I think, last the end of last week. And so any player who is English and is playing in that will have a different process coming into the England setup and camps. And the Australian season hasn't finished yet. So they're still performing or trying to perform at their peak. And so I think for England management, it's a question of how you can make sure that everybody falls in line in terms of the culture and belief and the game plan, but also gets enough recovery and rest. Because unlike judo, it's not over one day at the Commonwealth Games. You pretty much play from day one and you finish on the last day. Um, And so I think it's difficult The more experienced players understand how their body works, what they need to do, and if they need some extra downtime. Um, So going into camp, they might not necessarily train three times a day like everybody else. And so it's just about being able to tweak it and, I guess, management having those conversations with players to understand what it is that's needed from them. Um, I think one of the difficult things is other players. Because it's a team sport, everybody expects everybody to do everything. And 
almost say, oh, it's not fair, she's not doing this session. And actually, it is about individuals. So everybody is trying to achieve the same outcome to get to the start line, at, at the start line. But in order to do that, you have to tweak things for different people. And I think in a team sport, people just want things to be fair. So if I'm doing three sessions a day, you should be doing three sessions a day. Um, so, yeah, I think as, as a captain, it was about trying to manage those expectations so that people understood the person isn't slacking. They might have to do, I guess, more stretching or just like some players have to do more analysis. Some players have to practice their shooting if they're shooters, whereas other players don't do that. Um, so it's just about trying to manage people and their understanding of other people and where they fit into the structure. And I guess the naive assumption is, right, you all come together, everyone's all right, right, we'll work on this, work on this the next two weeks. But it's And, and how how challenging it, like I suppose, similar to as Kate's pointed out, I suppose these principles have been embedded a long time ago, haven't they, years out, and every time you have a camp, you're touching on those. But again, that have, like you've given the classic scenario, there will be athletes in Birmingham who some have been preparing for it for a month, some have maybe been a week. So how, how easy is it to get your head around that as regards to managing that whole environment? I think it is pretty tough. And then also I think it changes based on the experience of the player. So typically the players playing abroad are the more experienced players. And so they already know themselves. And so it's more about managing the less experienced players and their understanding of the setup and how things work. Um, but also it's a struggle to make sure that everybody is prepared and in the right place at the right time. And um, so I know in the Gold Coast, we had a training camp in Sydney and then we went to the Team England training camp in Brisbane before we went into the village on the Gold Coast. So it was probably a two and a half week build up or two and a half, three week build up. And as the captain, I know that our team needed time together in order to be able to perform well. Um, some teams, so Australia, they could probably have a one-day training camp and then play a Commonwealth Games final and perform. So they're very good at coming together, understanding how each other play. They all play quite similarly, so I think it's natural for them to be able to come together and just click your fingers and go. Um, and so in the build-up to the Commonwealth Games... Because there were players, I was in New Zealand, there were players in Australia and some players were coming from the UK. We had already discussed and planned about how soon we needed to meet prior to the Games in order to get to where we needed to be. And we actually went into our first um, camp and practice match having had one training session together and we performed really, really badly. And there was definitely panic stations. We were losing to clubs, club sides in Australia by a lot high double figures um and so it was a case of we aren't ready for this this isn't how we best prepare and so there was a lot of conversations about how to change the plan and alter things but um I think the fact that we had made a plan and also knowing how the team respond and perform was key to getting us to the performance end of the competition in the right place it's all, it's an incredible journey, isn't it, Kate, as regards to a career and you picking up, like you say, a lot of it is unfortunately in hindsight when you sort of pick up things and you look back on them. But for you, the Commonwealth Games is bittersweet, isn't it? Because you you, you didn't get to go to one, but you equally, you pointed out prior to the, when we were preparing for this podcast that that actually spurred you on as well. So again, for if we're talking about Team England futures, you know, we want them all to be every games, they're in the peak, they're in the peak and, and it happens. But when that first instance maybe of not getting selected for a major games or you don't hit, you maybe get dropped from funding, you're not made into that group as well. How's your, you know, knowledge of that journey? How, what advice would you pass on to ensure that there is that longevity and the first time they do hit a major stumbling, they, they don't just give up and, and step to the side? Yeah, I think obviously it was a massive lesson learned from me. Um, actually, being picked for Commonwealth, not being picked, and on the posters, all of that for Manchester, but didn't happen for one reason or another. Um, but looking back on it and what what I try and get through to to youngsters that haven't been selected or even even older athletes that haven't been selected for something, is that, look, don't shut down. I shut down for, for quite a bit because back then, you know, there wasn't, wasn't a massive team around me, but... Uh, don't shut down, set a new goal um, and make it happen. 
uh, I, I didn't do that for a very long time. And then I was like, right, I'm going to go to 2004. I was going to retire like, in 2002, but I'm going to go to 2004 regardless, which happened. But that's how I how I got past it. It was a new goal, a different games to, to uh, concentrate on. And I think that's the thing with with any with any any athlete there's always going to be something next but you have to change your mindset reset and go go to that next to that next tournament or next competition um it feels like the end of the world at the time that it happens and uh, there's no consolation or anything and i think i learned that as well that um even as a coach trying to console somebody you can't you can't do that. You just, you just have to talk to them. You have to be, be honest with them and say, look, I can't take that pain away. But what we can do is set a new goal. We can move on, and we can reset and get you to the next championship. Because um, obviously, as a youngster, they were trying to console me, and I wasn't having any of it, which is probably why I shut down a little bit. So, you know, you live and learn, and hindsight is a wonderful thing. Um, but having had that experience. I think it's helped me as a coach because I'm not patronising in trying to trying to console somebody because it does hurt, it really hurts. Um, but it's not going to break you. You've just got to move on from it. You've got to set a new challenge and, and move on to the next thing. And specifically for you, Amy, in terms of addressing some of these Team England Futures athletes that... You've gone. You've been an athlete who's gone globally and had success in so many countries, as well as with Team England. I know there's not necessarily one size fits all, but what was the main motivation for you traveling abroad, playing abroad, experiencing different cultures, and, and what do you think are the main benefits that that's brought you? So there's actually lots of people who say that England won the Commonwealth Gold because so many athletes played in the New Zealand and Australian domestic leagues. Um, and I think it was such a great opportunity to go over there and to learn, I guess, um, in England, the domestic competition is, I guess, only just becoming semi-professional. So a lot of the athletes have jobs or are at university um, in order to support themselves. Um, but in Australia and New Zealand, it's a full-time job and that enables them to have really good daily training environments. So you pretty much, your day is just set around training and rest and recovery and analysis. And that is an incredible thing. Um, I think also in New Zealand particularly, but also Australia, um, different codes um, talk to each other. And so you get understanding of different sports and how they interrelate or how your sport relates to them. So in New Zealand, in when I was in the team in Wellington, we would train with the Wellington rugby team and um, sort of exchange ideas and we'd go to the gym and the boys would be lifting their heavy weights, but we'd do competitions relative to our body weight so we could still win as females. Um, and so I think just having those interactions and understanding what it takes to be an athlete in different sports and how that can correlate to your sport, but also you personally, I think was a really good thing for me. And then also I think understanding how the public see sports people, so netball in particular. So in New Zealand, netballers are respected as much as the All Blacks. Um, and so it was just interesting to understand that correlation between how you interact with the public or fans or how when there's a game that you played badly in or the team didn't perform well in, you go to the supermarket and there's people wanting to tell you how badly you performed. And so I think just getting that understanding and that experience, some of them weren't very good or nice, but they definitely helped in terms of trying to cope with pressure or um, understanding that you have a responsibility not just to yourself and your team, but also to the wider public and your supporters. And Kate, keeping that international theme, um, particularly as an athlete and as a coach and team leader, how much of a learning opportunity are major games in terms of what you see from others? Because I think sometimes, rightfully, you're in your Team G, you're in your England, Scotland, you're in your bubble and you see ways. That, well, obviously, the benefit of international competition is you get exposed to other teams and seeing how they approach things. Is that something that, that you know the Team England Futures athletes will be able to pick up on is just... Rightfully, they'll want to speak to their fellow countryman and woman as regards to their journey, but also keeping an eye out on what other nations do and how they go about things. Yeah, I think, um, and I'm pretty sure Emma's seen a bit of judo randori as well, being at Bath when she was younger. You need somebody else to train with, like one-on-one. -on -one. And 
whatever country you're from, you travel around the world and go to, I want to call it like mass punch-ups, but it's not a punch-up. Honestly, it's training, but it's it's fighting. Every country, probably you could get 50 countries in the world, all congregate on one mat, the big mat, obviously, men and women separate, and then they just spar. So the knowledge that any youngster is picking up on getting their hands on somebody from Japan, you know, like demystifying them. We, we, we put them in that situation so that when they do actually fight them in a competition, they're like, oh, my God, I've got a Japanese. <laughs> um, but we, we try and expose them. We try and put them on with the best people in the world. Not always the best people in the world because they're always, uh, you know, they might, might get a little bit sore because they're getting thrown a lot. But, you know, you gauge it that that's probably the, the really good thing is that you can go on with an Olympic champion and the next fight you could go on with somebody that's just at club level. You know, that there's such a massive variation, but unless you put people in that scenario, they're never going to learn. So we do do that with, with international camps and that's where Futures will, a Futures programme, that's where they learn. That's where all the youngsters learn. We might take them for two or three weeks to Korea or to China or to Japan just to demystify it because they they all think because they're asian they're going to be fantastic at judo but everybody's got their own style you know in rugby everybody thinks the all blacks which they are amazing but it's not very often you get to go and play the all blacks so we try and do the next best things go and actually train with them go in their backyard do what they do you know just different sport but um that's what we try and do with the youngsters to to get rid of all the the little voices in their head that say, oh, I've got a Japanese, I must, um, they're really good. Or even French, like France are really good at it as well. So it's on our doorstep, so we just, we take them just just to get used to it. And final one for you then, Kate, in regards to athletes preparing, you know, the major championships is, is the biggest stage, isn't it? You want to be your best self. And Amma's touched upon it in terms of, you know, certainly from a viewer's point of view, we just see results and medals. But particularly what's been key in your journey is obviously the story behind being an athlete. You're not just the result, you're not just the medal as well. And obviously a landmark moment for yourself was in 2018 when you came out publicly to be to be gay. And you've obviously spoken to your family about that. So I'm sure in your inner circle, it was something you were very comfortable with. But again, that transition from you now advising athletes and looking at it from that major points of view as regards to how we want to make everyone in all forms of society feel welcome and particularly at a major championships just just share your thoughts on how that experience has been and i don't know if, if you are able to help athletes in, in a better way now do you feel yeah I, I think i think actually coming out publicly and saying it helps any athlete uh, especially youngsters because they feel that they can't i think society itself is it's learning and it is changing, but it's it's very slow. And I think I had the conversation yesterday. Actually, I think even within sport, it's still really slow, very slow. I mean, we had Kelly Holmes yesterday. Um, she, she's fifty two years old and kept it pent up for thirty odd years. You know, because you don't feel that that it's safe or it's a safe place to come out because of losing sponsorship or. I think hers was a rank in the army or whatever it is, you know, you feel like there's so much to lose. But I think actually coming out and saying, yes, this is who I am, hopefully that will help whoever it is in the future, young or old, um, to make that decision to to be honest with themselves. I've got four year well, nearly four now, four-year-old child at home. If I can't be honest to anybody in the street, what what am I what am I teaching my youngster? He, he he's going to grow up with two mums and he's going to have to talk about it, yet I'm the one that's bottling it up. So um, I think the more people do come out and, and, and say, this is, a, this, is, this is the choice that I've made, you know, the better the world is. And you're always going to get discrimination wherever it comes from. It, it's always going to be the case. But um, I think on a world level, on a sporting level, in big games environments, I think... The more people do it, the better it will be because you do feel included. You feel included in Olympic Games. You feel included at Commonwealth Games. Why you should be, why should you be excluded just because of of your sexual orientation? You know, it's you know it, it is getting better, but it could be a lot better. But hopefully, the more people that come out and and say this is who I am, the better it will become.
Yeah, definitely. I think we just need to keep the conversation going, yeah, don't we? Exactly. And, and keep that maintained, that regular exactly. dialogue. If we now finally just focus on the games themselves, Amma, I know rightfully you'll be there and you'll be a face in and around watching as much as you can. We know you'll be watching the netball, but is there anything else in particular that you're thinking, oh, I'm going to get along to that or anything, you know, particularly now, a Commonwealth Games as a spectator, you're not going to be having to worry about performance and all those sort of things. Yeah, it's incredible because netball starts at the beginning and ends at the end. You don't really get to see much sport. So I'm excited to be able to go to a Commonwealth Games and see other things. Um, I love athletics, so that will definitely be on the list. And I love gymnastics. And I think you don't really get to see a lot of gymnastics um, across the year, let alone um, a cycle. So... I'll be keen to see those. And also, um, when I lived in Australia, my friend's dad taught me about cricket. Um, I thought it was boring until then. And so T20 cricket, <laughs> Shh, is... <laughs> T20 cricket is in the games for the first time. So I'm excited to see how that goes as well. And for yourself, Kate, I know you'll have lots of eyes on, on the judo map, but is, uh, is, that, is that your only focus for this Commonwealth um, Games? or are you? I think... What is really going to be special about this is that on the Monday the judo starts, I'm going to take my little boy along as a spectator. I don't have to to do anything. I just have to watch, just have to be a mum, <laughs> watching him try and understand judo because it's quite difficult. Um, that will be amazing. But also netball. And it's not just because Amazon here. <laughs> I, I know I know Jess, I know Tam's in at Scotland and England coaches that I was at Bath as Amma knows. So I know people in and around other sports that I'm really quite interested in seeing how they get on. Um, so, yeah, it'll be, be interesting. I do love a bit of cricket, to be fair, Amma. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it'd be... I'm just looking forward to whatever the sport is. I'm a bit of a sports freak. Whatever the sport is, just being a spectator for once will be great. And also, yeah, and maybe not necessarily something we've taken for granted, certainly off the back of Tokyo and, you know, those that ability for people to go and access and, and see, you know, Britain, we're great at sport, aren't we? To see that in the flesh is something that's going to be life-changing in terms of inspiring the next generation as well. Exactly. But I've also got other people back at the centre that are injured that are still getting ready for the world championships so you know your day job's not gone but yeah. i will do a few days here and there as a spectator <laughs> great to hear it well thank you very much for your time and your open and honesty and talking for so many topics it's been fascinating and thanks for joining us on the sports aid world podcast Thank you to Amma and Kate for joining us on the Sports Aid Vault. You can find out more about Sports Aid and Team England Futures by visiting sportsaid.org.uk or checking out at Team Sports Aid on Twitter and Instagram. The Sports Aid Vault podcast is produced with Hogarth Worldwide and Gramercy Park Studios. And our theme music is courtesy of Vidal Riley. You can check out his latest releases on Spotify. Man, I can't stop. Man, I can't stop. Man, I can't stop. Man, I can't stop.